Hello, hello. Happy Sabbath. Happy Sabbath. Welcome to Church Rock Fellowship. Whether you're here in person joining us or whether you're watching us from online, we're glad you're joining us for worship today. If you've been joining us for the past now four weeks, we've been currently going through um, one particular book in the Bible. And this is the first time our church has ever really done a series like this. We just go through one book of the Bible. Uh, this is a five-part series. So uh, this week and next week, Pastor Eden is our closer for this series. We'll close out the series. Um, but this series has been on the book of Esther. And hence, the name of our series is simply the book of Esther. And if you join us for part one of our series, um, there was a very important truth that Pastor Chris covered in the first part. And it was that the point of the book of Esther is not actually Esther herself. The point of the book of Esther is not Esther. And then he went on further and you thought maybe, oh, maybe uh, the, point of, uh, the point of the book of Esther is Mordecai, who is also kind of a prominent character. But he wanted to say it's neither Esther nor Mordecai. Actually, none of the human characters are the main point of the book of Esther. The main point of the book of Esther doesn't have a single spoken line because the point of the book of Esther isn't Esther, it's God. And how God can work behind the scenes within a book without being as flashy and being a little subtle and using his providence to make things move. And in part two, we talked about the most hopeful part of the series. And it was that God is the God of reversal. And when you, when you broke down the conflict, when you broke down the structure of the book of Esther, you find that there are a lot of parallels except for one point. And the one point in the book where there's a reversal, where everything flips flips on his head, and it's when uh, Mordecai is honored. And there's this weird turn of events, and it's kind of a random scene in the book where you don't really know what's going on. There's this weird, the king can't sleep. So a lot of weird things happen. But from that point forward, everything in the book of Esther changes to favor the Jews and God's people. And the hope from that message was that the reversal that is seen in, in part two, the reversal that's seen in the book of Esther and the story of Esther of how God can flip the narrative at one point in time, that's still true today. That God is still the God of reversal and there's hope for that today. And last week, um, Pastor Chris talked about what, was, what he said was the most challenging part in this series. And it was about the faithfulness of God. And the kind of tough pill to swallow that, that he said was that the faithfulness of God cannot be determined at the present time. The faithfulness of God can only be determined in retrospect looking back because at present we don't really have enough perspective uh, to tell the faithfulness of God. And it's determined to be looking back at how God has been faithful in our lives, not necessarily by our current circumstances. Um, and one of the things he talked about when he talked about last week, um, the faithfulness of God and how sometimes um, we can attribute our unfaithfulness as God's unfaithfulness. And one of the examples he cited was, um, and maybe you guys can relate to this, because I, I definitely can, was if you've ever not studied for a test, or you're underprepared for a test, presentation, anything like that, um, and just before, or maybe during the test, you pray to God and you're like, God, I done goofed, I messed up, I know I shouldn't have, but I could really use some help right now. God, if you can get me through this test. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you start like bargaining with God in that situation. Like, God, if I can get, I just, just a high B would be great. And if you do, I'll do whatever you want. I'll join the praise team, I'll serve. Just get me through this, right? And then you fail the test or you do very poorly and then you turn around and you blame God. Like, God, what the heck, what's going on? I prayed, I was faithful, I called out and you didn't answer me. Um, when he said that uh, last week, it like struck a chord with me because it reminded me of, of, a, of one particular test I took. Um, and I'm going to start this by saying I do not recommend that anyone do this. This is not a story of something you should replicate. This, is, this happened, but I will say right now, if you're currently a student, do not follow this example. But my sophomore year in high school, um, I took a chemistry class, and I was really, really bad at chemistry. Chemistry and physics were two of the worst classes uh, that I've ever had to sit through. And I was really bad at it. Um, and my sophomore year, I was taking this class, um, and it was like 
I was like borderline. My grade was borderline and I was not doing so hot. And I was taking this test. And I don't know if you, I don't know, everyone has their own kind of technique when they take a test. And the, the way I did it was I started at the front and I just do the easy questions first, right? What do I know right off the top of my head? And I'll go down to Tantron. And it must have been like maybe like a 75 question test. And I'm going through, I'm like, all right, I know some of these, I know some of these, and I'm going through the packet. And then before I knew it, I was back at the front page. And I was like, oh my goodness, is that, is that all I knew? And then so I went back and I was like, okay, well, maybe there's some questions here where I can like eliminate some of the choices and like, you know, make educated guesses. And I was going through and like, it hit me pretty early on. This is like 10 minutes into this test. And I'm like, I, I'm not going to do well on this test. Like, this is not going to go well. And that's when I was like, you know what? I should talk to God about this. And to say that I prayed to God would be an understatement. I cried out to God. And I was like, God, like everything from bargaining to begging to pleading. I was like, God, like if you can just get me through this, right? And I'm praying to God and I'm like pouring my heart out. Like going through all of my past, like everything that I've done. Like God, like I'm repenting, I'm confessing. I'm like, God, I need to, I have a borderline grade in this class. I need to do well. And to this day... I can't like 100% fully explain what happened. But I was staring at the Scantron, and again, a majority of the, of the questions are blank at this point. I haven't filled anything in. And then just like letters just started coming in. A, B, E, E. And I was going, I was like, oh my God, that's great. And I went through, and I was like, E, E. And again, like a majority of the test is blank at this point. But like, it really didn't feel like it was like my voice. And I, it didn't feel like I was guessing because at this point, I'm not even looking at the packet right now. I'm like just looking at the Scantron. And I went through the entire test and I was the first one done with the test. And like, I was like, you know, and at that point, it's like, what is the point of double checking? Because like, what is there to double check? And I got up and I walked to the front of the class and like all my friends were like, how are you done? I was like, what can I say? What I called and you answered and you came to my rescue. Like I was, I know, I'm genuinely, I was praising God in that moment. I have never praised God like that. I was like, wow, God is good all the time. Even when I'm not faithful, God is faithful. This is crazy. And like, I remember like walking to my next class, like, and I had like uh, Air, uh, AirPods in, and I was like, or earphones in, I was like listening to praise music. I was like, wow, like God is good. All, I was in such a great mood. And because I'd never really had that happen before where like, it literally felt like, the, the line from Living Hope, like, in desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. And through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through, and he, like, came to my rescue. Um, and the way that class worked was, um, the way the teacher posted about the grades was that he would put um, all the grades just on, like, one Excel spreadsheet next to our student ID number. So it's relatively anonymous, and it was ranked from the highest score to the lowest score. And I got there. Um, and he, it was probably like a week later I got there and then it's like, you know what it happens because everyone rushes around the door and they're like, oh shoot, like, how did I do, how did I do? And obviously I'm like, I'm like, cool. I'm like not even stressing. I'm like, you guys go ahead. Don't even worry about it. And then I went up to check and obviously I'm starting at the top, right? I'm like, okay, well, like God answered about 75 of those questions. So let's start on top. And I was going through and I was like, okay, I didn't get an A on it. That's okay. I did answer, like, about 25% of the test on my own. So, like, I probably should have trusted God for the entire test. And I'm going down. I was like, ooh, I didn't get a B on it. Ooh. And I'm not going to say what I got on that test. <laughs> but I am going to say that, like, if I told this story again without telling you that I prayed and just telling you that I guessed on about 75% of the test, you'd be like, that sounds about, like, what you would get if you guessed on about 75% of the test. 
And like as funny of a story as that is, and like as ridiculous as it is looking back, for me, that was such a cornerstone moment in my spiritual walk. Because I realized in that moment how easy it was for me to confuse my delusion with God's voice. And for in that moment, and like I can say this with like a clear conscience, I was genuinely praying to God. Like everything I said, I meant. All the bargaining I did, which obviously I didn't go through with because I didn't do well on the test, but all the pleas, like the confession, it was so genuine. It was so real, and I really meant everything I said in that moment. Like I was on the verge of tears taking that chemistry test. And I realized in that moment that I was so confident that this was God's voice. This was God moving in my life. This was God's will that I do well on this test and go from a borderline grade to the other side. And what happened after that test was I went the other side of the border. Like, it was not good. And that was when it really hit me how easy it was and how confusing it could be for me to confuse what I want with what I thought God wanted for me in my life. And I realized through the experience how easy it was to confuse my will with God's will and my voice with God's voice. And I think that's something that most followers of Jesus experience at some point in your life, especially if you're relatively new and you're, and you're getting to the concept of prayer and I'm praying to God and you hear this, the, the pastor on the front and then your Sabbath school teacher and mentors tell you like you need to surrender and do God's will and submit yourself to him and, and go according to God's plan in your life. And I bet you for most of us, there have probably been moments in our lives when that was our genuine prayer, like God, I want to do your will. How do I do it? What is your will? God, I want to do what you want me to do, but like how can, I, how can I do that? How do I know it's you? How can I see you in my life? And I think the question that we really ask ourselves as we get on the screen, oh, the question that I ask as we get on the screen is, how do I see God move when I can't see God? Also, new for 2021, 721, we got slides. It only took about two and a half years, but okay. We got slides for you guys up here. So the main, the question that this message kind of seeks to answer is, is the the crux of it is this. How do I see God move when I can't see God? And to be honest, most of the Bible isn't the best reference for this. For most of the Bible, God shows up in flashy and kind of powerful and supernatural ways. Um, and that's why I think the book of Esther is such a relevant book for our lives. And Pastor Chris mentioned this earlier on in the series, that one of the most unique aspects about the book of Esther is the fact that Yahweh isn't mentioned a single time in the entire book. There are some points where you can think, like you can kind of imply that, oh, these people were praying and fasting probably to God or Yahweh, but there's no explicit mention of God. Not only, not only is there no explicit mention of God, there's really no like supernatural event that takes place throughout the entire story. And I would like to draw a comparison of the book of Esther to the book of Exodus, or actually the event of the Exodus, because I think those are two events that are paralleled in so many ways where God is rescuing his people, God is saving his people from a foreign land, but he does so in two dramatically different ways. When we read the story of Exodus and the plagues, God is super flashy. He, he turns the longest river in the world into blood. He has hundreds of thousands of frogs come out and desecrate the land. There's a swarm of small insects and there's a swarm of large insects. There's a deadly, there's a skin disease epidemic. There's literally thunderstorm and hail and lightning. He splits a body of water in half. He calls in the angel of death. It's crazy. And you can't deny when you read the story of the Exodus. And if you are an observer of these events, like, there is something definitely supernatural going on right now. Like there is some higher power, someone or something is moving because this is not normal. This defies what we know. And then you get to the book of Esther where there are no supernatural events. At best, there are, oh, 
that was a crazy coincidence of like, what are the odds of that happening? There's also no voice of God where God comes and says, hey, this is my will. This is my son of who I'm well pleased. I want you to do this. And on top of that, there's not even a messenger. There's no prophet with a specific message that says, thus saith the Lord, do this, do this, do this. And if you do, this will happen. They get none of that. It's pretty much radio silence. So it begs the question, then how do you see God move in the book of Esther? And chances are for most of you, if you read the book and you didn't know that God wasn't mentioned, you probably just assumed God was mentioned. And probably the first time you heard that, oh, God isn't mentioned in the book of Esther, you're probably a little surprised. You probably had to flip through a couple times and be like, I could have sworn I saw God mentioned in here, but he really isn't. And so the sermon, we're going to look into how do you see God move in the book of Esther? And also, how can I put myself in a position where I can be used by God in the same way Esther and Mordecai were? But I invite you to join me in a word of prayer as we get into the word today. Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to thank you for this privilege and the opportunity to share your word with you, God. And I ask that um, during this time, Lord, you speak through me and speak your truth through me, God. Not my will, but yours be done. And for anyone listening, whoever needs to hear this message from you, Father, I ask that that happen. Soften our hearts, Lord. Holy Spirit, as we sang earlier, this is also our prayer. You are welcome here, not only in this space, but in our hearts and in our minds, Father. Speak to us, for, your, for we are listening. Praise in your son, Jesus. Amen. So um, the question still stands, where do you see God move in the book of Esther? And also, as an aside to that, if you're a follower of Jesus, a natural question that follows is, how can I then, how can I put myself in a situation or in a place or in a headspace or in a place where I can then be used by God according to his will? How can I go along with God's plans? Um, and there are two kind of main ways you see uh, God move in the book of Esther. And the first are through what I call like, what are the odds events? There are a couple events in the Bible, um, in the book of Esther, that have two very strong characteristics. One is there's a very low probability of that happening, and those events have a very high impact on the story. For every single one of these events, if any one of these doesn't happen, there's a very different ending to the book of Esther. The first is the fact that Esther was chosen as the, as the queen, and that happens very early on in the story. But if you read how she was chosen to be queen, it's actually a very interesting story. Um, and she was chosen to be queen because very early on, as she enters this kind of beauty pageant, before she gets, as she gets into the beauty pageant, she spends a couple of months there um, kind of training, getting spa treatments, and learning kind of the mannerisms of the court. And during that time there, she actually catches the favor of the head eunuch there. And this is um, what the Bible says. Uh, if you look up, when it was Esther's turn, to go to the king, we'll get a text on the screen. When it was Esther's turn to go to the king, she accepted the vice of Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the harem. She asked for nothing except what he suggested, and she was admired by everyone who saw her. That's a very important part of this. When she got there, kind of the training part before she actually went and saw the king, she immediately found favor in the person running the show. The person running the program, the person that worked for the king, saw Esther and took favor and said, hey, let's give her some extra treatments. So she had a special menu, special beauty treatments, and she gave Esther kind of like side advice. Hey, this is what you want to do. This is what the king likes. This is how you should act in front of the king. And some of the advice that she gave her definitely says the Bible says that she was admired by everyone who saw her, partly because of the favor that she found when she first got there. And it plays into the fact that the king also favored her enough to, one, stop the whole Miss Persia event when he saw her. And also, later on in the story, when she shows up unannounced, he favors her enough, remembers her enough. She left a strong enough impression that he extends the scepter and saves her life. And this particular event and this phenomenon, the fact that Esther, despite being a foreigner in a foreign land, was so favored by the king and the people around them, um, is one that I can confidently say must have been God moving because this is a pattern we see 
throughout scripture. The idea of a young person of God in a foreign land that very quickly receives favor from the natives around them. Um, and because of the people uh, showing them favor, they're used by God for a greater purpose. There are a lot of stories like this, like Joseph going to a foreign land, sold as a slave. And he gets there, and he gets he's sold to the captain of the guard, Potiphar. And very quickly, he finds favor in Potiphar's eyes. He also kind of finds favor in his wife's eyes, and it doesn't go so well. But then he gets thrown to prison. And then even in prison, he finds favor with the warden. And every step along the way, it's just there's this aspect of people want to help him. People favor him. People look out for him. Also, Daniel in a foreign land, when he first gets there, he makes the bold enough statement to be like, hey, can I get my own food? I don't like the food you're giving me now, but I like to do my own thing. And if it works, then you can keep it with me. And because of that and his bravery and the fact that he was so highly competent, he finds favor in the people there at Babylon and the king, and he works his way up the bureaucracy. Moses, the list goes on. This is kind of a little bit different, but he must have been like a really cute baby or something because when the Pharaoh's daughter sees him, immediately she finds favor with Moses. And instead of throwing Moses away and the story could have ended very differently, she decides to raise Moses as his own in the palace, saving his life and preserving him for a bigger future down the road. The list goes on and on with Ruth and many other people in the Bible that find themselves in a foreign land and God somehow works behind the scenes providentially so that they can find favor with the people there. The second kind of what are the odds event that happens is the decree of Haman. So the story, and we've recapped the story several times, but the way uh, Haman comes up with this decree is he hates Mordecai, he wants to kill all the Jews, and he makes this decree. And we'll go into a little bit about how ridiculous the decree is in a little bit. But the way he selects the date for which all the Persians can attack and kill the Jews is he rolls a dice, hence the name Purim, um, which is the name of the, of the festival. And he rolls a dice, and it ends up 11 months away. The fact that it doesn't end up closer to the date and gives them less time, I think is an act of providence. Combined with the fact that when you read what the decree was, here's what the decree essentially was. The decree that Haman wrote was this. On this certain day, anyone can kill Jews. And the Jew that you kill, you get to take that person's property. So essentially, he turned it into a bounty hunt. He said, hey, whoever wants to, take up your weapons. And on this day, we're all going to attack and kill these Jews. And when you do, whichever Jew family you kill, you get to take that person's property. Kind of enticing, like, private people to do this on their own. It's very, like, purgy in a sense. Um, but the fact that he doesn't choose, and I read this, and it was a very interesting point. The fact that he doesn't make it the Persian army or an organized attack on these people, I think plays a really big role into the fact that Jews were able to survive afterwards. And the fact that during all of this, Esther's nationality is kept a secret. That someone that Mordecai had the foresight to say, hey, you might not want to tell everyone you're a Jew at this point. Let's save that for later. And then probably the most crazy coincidence that happens, and it's the turning point of the whole story of Esther, is the king's insomnia. When he can't speak or when he can't sleep and he asks that the, the chronicles of the king be written to him. On that specific night, he asked to read that specific book, turn to those specific pages. Mordecai also overheard the assassination plot and he hadn't been rewarded yet at that point, all on the day Haman wanted to kill Mordecai. All of these events have to line up perfectly. If any one of those things don't happen, there's potentially a very different story or ending to the book of Esther. And last but maybe the most subtle um, is the fact that through all of this, Esther is still connected to Mordecai and her Jewish community. I think it's very plausible to think that the minute Esther entered into the palace, she could have very easily said, that is no longer my problem. I have my own life. You and I are on different levels now, Mordecai. I am royalty. I'm in the palace. You work for the palace. Those Jews out there, that's different. But throughout the entire story, she still remains respectful and heeds Mordecai's advice all the way through the way, throughout the entire story. 
Um, and the fact that she still remembered, respected, and heeded Mordecai's advice after she became queen, um, despite the fact that there's a huge disparity in their living situations, I think goes to the providence of God. And the fact that she still cared enough about her people, despite the fact that she wasn't living with them anymore, I think shows uh, providence of God in that sense. But for the most part, just seeing these things and knowing that God works through like crazy, unusual circumstances is cool. And I think it helps you see the book of Esther in like a slightly different way. Wow, I didn't realize there are so many events that needed to line up. Um, but for a Christian living today, it's not wildly helpful to just know that, yeah, well, God can work through crazy circumstances. God can work through coincidences and weird timings and all that stuff. Maybe you already knew that. Um, but uh, I cite these to bring attention to other areas that I think can be applicable for us deciphering God's will. And again, for us, I think the main question a lot of us ask is, one, how do I determine God's will? And then two, how can I put myself in a position where like Esther and like Mordecai, I can be used according to God's will and I can fulfill his purpose a little bigger than myself. And I think the, the way you see that is when you see the four main characters of the story of Esther, um, God excluded, you see the king, Haman, Esther and Mordecai. And when you split those two into the king and Haman kind of versus Esther and Mordecai, you see that there's a bit of a distinction in the way they act and the reason they do certain things. And it's in what motivates their action. Let's start with the king. The king, um, if, when you read the story of Esther, you really get this impression that this might be one of the most incompetent people in the book. This man is like, he has no backbone. He has no value. He just does whatever. He's very lazy. Um, and here's, here's a, a couple of the reasons why I say that. The story starts with him just impulsively, like, deposing of the queen, right? Because she, she hurts his feelings, he gets rid of her. And on top of that, that happens in chapter 1. And chapter 2 is when Esther becomes selected as queen. In between chapter 1 and 2, about four years pass. And that's when the king, um, King Xerxes of Persia, actually invades or tries to invade Greece. And he fails dramatically, and he's get brought back. So that's what happens in between chapter 1 and 2. So off, right off the bat, he's not off to a great start. Um, and on top of that, probably the most, in, like, the best picture you see of how incompetent he is as a king and how much he just, it sounds like he doesn't know what he's doing, is when Haman approaches the king with the decree. When Haman gets, gets insulted by Mordecai and he's like, he schemes, okay, what can I do to get rid of Mordecai and the Jews? And he presents, he kind of pitches this law to the king. This is what the text says, and this is how the king responds. Um, this is Haman talking. If it please the king, issue a decree that they, the Jews, be destroyed. And I, this is Haman speaking, will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. The king agreed, confirming his decision by removing his signet ring from his finger and giving it to Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the Agai, the enemy of the Jews. The king said, the money and the people are both yours to do as you wish. To just wrap up what he said, he basically goes to the king and says, hey, I have this plan. I think we should have a day set aside, a holiday, if you will, where all of us just killed all the Jews. And everyone that kills a Jew can get the property that they killed. Doesn't that sound like an amazing idea? On top of that, to make this happen, let me give you 10,000 sacks of silver. So there's about 10,000 talents of silver. It's about 375 tons of silver. Just for fun, I did a little bit of the math, considering like, it's not a one-to-one, -one, but considering the cost of silver today times 375 tons, that's about $300 million, right? He says, hey, Here's this idea, let me give you $300 million to make it happen. Right off the bat, he's bribing the king to make a law. And the king's like, you know what, keep the money, here's my ring. You can do whatever you want. That's how he responds to this. Like, how is this not the most suspicious pitch you've ever seen in your life? And the king says, yeah, that sounds good. 
here's my ring, you can do whatever you want. And on top of the fact, the reason it's more irresponsible is what you see later in the story that whatever law is signed by the king's ring cannot be undone. So whatever Haman decides to do, whatever he stamps that ring on, there's no reverse option in this. You have to create another law to go on top of it. And you see that played out earlier in the book of Daniel where the king can't just pull him out of the den because you can't reverse the law in Persian culture. So this is, this is the king. And this is, when you read the story, you very much get the impression like this guy, like he just does what he wants. Whatever I want to do, whatever pleases me, I'm just going to do it. If I'm angry, I'm going to be angry. If I'm sad, I'm going to be sad. If I don't care, I'm going to have someone else take care of my problem. He like has really no idea what's going on the whole time. And he just gets tossed and turned uh, with the situation as it goes. And this is similar in the case of Haman as well. When you look at what motivates his action throughout the story, it's primarily his hatred for, for Mordecai. Right? That's kind of what spurs and creates the general conflict of the story of Esther. He hates Mordecai so much because he feels um, very early on that Mordecai insulted him. And actually a lot of Haman's character, a lot of what he does in the story, essentially just re revolves around him just trying to satiate his anger. Like, I'm so angry, i got to do something about it. Let me kill all the Jews. And that's essentially the driving conflict of the entire book. And the one other thing that happens to him is when the king asks him um, in the story, in the reversal of the chapter, and he asks him, hey, how should I honor someone that the king pleases? And he basically just tells the king, here's my fantasy. Here's what I wish you would do to me. Those are the two bits of information we have from Haman. He hates Mordecai, and this is how he would treat someone um, if he was the king. And that's directly contrasted. And when you see this duo of the king and Mordecai, there are a lot of similarities to how they act, what motivates them, the reason they do their things. And it's basically, you largely see two people that just live life how they please. It pleases the king to do this. It pleases Haman to do this. So he's going to go ahead and do that. And they're largely motivated by their desires and specifically like their, their selfish desires. What makes me feel better? What, how can I feel better about myself? What can I do to, to push my agenda? And that's directly contrasted, I think, throughout the whole story with Esther and Mordecai, where the king and Haman just do what pleases them. Esther and Mordecai do what will save others. That's the driving point of what Esther and Mordecai do throughout the entire book. The major plot points for Esther and Mordecai revolve around what they're willing to do for others, despite the fact that they may risk and take uncomfortability upon themselves. The two main things that they do is Mordecai reveals the plot to assassinate the king. Very early on, he overhears a conversation and he goes to the proper channels and makes sure the king is saved and saves the king's life by revealing um, the assassination attempt. And then the main kind of climax of the story, when Esther risks her own life to go into the presence of the king, um, basically to save the people's lives. And especially when it comes to the main tension in the story where Esther has to decide on approaching the king. And we talked about this uh, in the past weeks where there's this tension and, and, you know, you can't really blame Esther. She's like, ah, I don't know. Like, I haven't seen the king in a really long time. The law, the rule is if he doesn't call me, I could die on the spot. It really depends on what he's feeling. Um, she's very much like having to risk her life to do this. And in, in order for her to do God's will, and this is kind of like, what you see in both Haman and both Mordecai and Esther, but really when Esther takes that first step, she realizes that in order for her to do God's will, in order for her to be used by God, she steps, she has to step outside of her comfort zone. And that's drastically contrasted with the fact, um, that's drastically contrasted with the fact where Haman and the king essentially just do what pleases them. What's easy for me to do? What would I like to do? Whereas Esther, the driving point, the way she really gets to be involved in God's will and move forward is she has to step outside of her comfort zone and do something that risks her life, do something that puts herself in danger. And honestly, if you look at her situation, you can't really blame her for feeling the way that she feels. For all intents and purposes, she might have been okay. 
No one knew she was a Jew. She kept it a secret for this long. It's plausible to think that she could have kept it a secret for longer. Despite what, he, despite what Mordecai was telling her, it's easier for her to turn the other way and say, you know what? That sounds like a you problem, Mordecai. That sounds like a you guys out there problem. I'm going to take care of myself. It's busy as it is being queen. Why don't you figure that out for yourself? But she decides to get out of her comfort zone for the sake of others in order to be included in God's plan. And the reality is throughout the entire Bible, this is a very common theme where whenever God calls someone, it's almost 10 times out of 10, 9.5 times out of 10, he's calling them outside of their comfort zone. The story of Abraham calling him out of his home to a land he didn't know, calling Moses, and Moses throws up every single excuse he can. I'm slow of speech and tongue. I can't do this. Bring someone else. When he calls Gideon, and he has all these excuses. Every single story of the Bible where someone does something outside of themselves, someone gets involved in a bigger plan, in God's plan, it's almost always outside of their comfort zone. And they genuinely, at first, do not like it. Just look at how Jesus calls all of his disciples. Leave the job you know. Leave the cush life you know. Leave what's comfortable for you. Leave your family. Leave your job. Come follow me. Where are we going? Who knows? How long is it going to last? Who knows? But come follow me. I guarantee you it will be worth it. And every single one of those people that left what they knew and their homes and, and what was comfortable for them gets to look back and say, wow, I was totally out of my comfort zone. I didn't know what I was doing, but I took a step of faith and followed God. And because of that, my life is totally different. And the first way we see God move again is that God moves outside of our comfort zone when he calls us. And to be a part of God's plan, to see God move, and to be a part of God's movement, a lot of times it involves us being willing to step outside of our comfort zone. And that's why I'm, oh, and the second way we see God move is directly related to what we just talked about. Um, if you look at the passage of where Mordecai is talking to Esther, and we talked about this last week in the passage, where she's a little hesitant. She's like, you know... There's a lot going on. There's a lot riding on this. I don't know if I should talk to the king. And Mordecai kind of sharply rebukes her and says, hey, if you don't do this, God's going to save us some other way. But you may suffer the consequences because of this. God will be faithful even if, even if you aren't faithful. During all of this and this tension, um, again, during this time, this is not a face-to-face -face conversation. He, uh, he's telling a messenger. The messenger tells Esther. And the messenger takes Esther's message back to Mordecai because they're not in the same place. Um, and it's during this time where she hears the message from Mordecai. And I imagine she sat on it for a little bit. Where Mord the messenger comes and says, hey, this is what Mordecai says. You got to step up. This is what you got to do. You got to talk to the king because that's the only way you can save us. And I know there's all this stuff going on, but you're really our only hope. I imagine when she heard that message, she probably took a second. Maybe a day or two. She just sat on and said, okay, what does this really mean for me? And when she responds to Mordecai, this is what she tells Mordecai. She makes one request. Um, and the request is, go and gather all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. My mates and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in and see the king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai did everything he asked. Basically, all she asked is this. Okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go and see the king. Give me three days. But all I ask is that can you let everyone else know? All my friends, all my family, all the Jews in Susa know that this is happening and to fast with me. I will be fasting, my maids will be fasting, and I ask that my community, my family, my fellow believers come with me and stand in solidarity with me. If I could know that you were doing that, it would encourage me a lot. And that's why I'm convinced that one of the other ways you clearly see God move in the book of Esther is through community. The fact that what she primarily asked for, the main thing she wanted was nothing else, no other preparation, no other plans. All I need to know is that my people 
My community is behind me and they're standing beside me. They know what I'm gonna do. They're praying for me, they're caring for me and they're here to help me out. In the book of Esther, you see that her community plays a really big role in encouraging Esther to act according to God's will. Her community of fellow Jews, of fellow believers. And the thing is, we've talked about community a lot in the past. And if you're new here, you may not know this. But if you've been here for a while, you know that the mission statement of Rock Fellowship, the reason our church exists, is to connect people to a loving community, a living Savior, and a lasting purpose, roughly in that order. And we usually talk about community in the context of, hey, if you're not a part of a community join a community. And a lot of times, um, Pastor Chris and I, or whoever's on the pulpit, has talked about the importance of community and, and, and a push for small groups or getting involved. I mean, it's usually um, kind of geared towards people that, hey, if you are not a part of a community, you should find yourself in a community because there are so many benefits of community. And that's all true. Uh, but for this week, in the context of the book of Esther, I want to address the other side of the table. To the people in this room, to the people that are watching live, that maybe you already have a community. And you, if someone were to ask you, do you have a community? Are you part of a community? You could confidently say, yeah, I'm a part of a community. And you can cite the name of the community. And the reality is, um, in the book of Esther, and to be honest, we see it in our own lives as well, um, is that God consistently works, God consistently works through people who strive to follow him. That for followers of Jesus, God makes it a point throughout the entire Bible, um, and he makes it known that God uses family members, he uses friends, he uses peers to speak truth into the lives of prophets, uh, and speak truth in the lives of people through prophets, patriarchs, judges, and the kings. Now, what that means for us here today is that if God moves through community, if God moves to the people in the community, and there's so many examples in the Bible where, for instance, where David does something and the prophet Nathan comes into his life and speaks truth, hey, you probably shouldn't have done that. Where there are people that mess up or when, when Moses is stressing out about how to set up all the judicial systems in the camp and his father-in-law says, hey, maybe this is a good idea. Take things off your plate. Appoints him other judges. There's so many instances where the protagonist, the main character of a biblical story is approached by a family member, a friend, someone in the area, a prophet, and they speak truth into their lives and because of what they do, that protagonist is able to go through and follow through with God's plan. And what that means for us in this room, if God moves through community, that also means that that logically follows that God moves through you. As a member of a community, it's incumbent on us to know that God can move through your actions, your words, your character, and your presence. That God moves through when you, your encouragements, through your rebukes, your care for others outside of yourself. But the reality is that as a member of a community, and if you find yourselves and you can say that I am a part of a community, it's always easier to just receive. To be a part and be like, hey, this is nice. And to reap the benefits and to show up and just kind of go with the flow. It's always going to be easier and it's much more enjoyable in a sense to just do that. Um, but what makes a community thrive, better yet, what allows God to use a community for his work is when the people in the community, like Esther, like Mordecai, like the Jews at Susa, when the people in the community work, people in the community and all the Jews uh, view community as a means of intentionally living for more than just yourself. When community isn't just a place where you go and you can hang out and enjoy, when community is a place, as an avenue for you to live for outside of yourself, where it's a means for you to come, show up, and live for someone, some purpose, something outside of just myself and what do I want. And that's really the turning point, and that's what really motivates a lot of what Esther and Mordecai were doing in the story of Esther. That they looked at their community, at their people, the community that they were a part of, even if they weren't physically there, and Esther said, I care about these people. And because I'm a part of this community, I'm willing to put myself in harm's way. I'm willing to go above and beyond for someone outside of myself. And harshly contrasted to that are the king 
and King and Haman who sit there and only think, what can I do for myself? How can I appease myself? And in the end, Esther and, Esther and Mordecai are able to go according to God's plan and serve their community. And when the community is a vehicle for us to exercise selflessness, even if it's at the cost of your personal comfort, you set yourself up to be used according to God's will. You set yourself up for God to move inside of your life as you serve and are selfless to others. And here's just a thought to think about. Maybe you being here in this room, in this space, or wherever you are watching live, or if you're listening um, on demand later, maybe you being there in your community, wherever you are, your character, your words, your actions, your presence um, in this community has been orchestrated by God, and all he's waiting for you is to move and to get involved. Now, a lot of times when, when a pastor or someone says this from the front, it can seem like a call to like, all right, join the praise team or join a, you know, a formal team. And I know I can say for confidence that if you are looking for a place to serve, VBS is just around the corner. I know for a fact that they can use a lot of volunteers um, to put on that amazing program. But more so than just formal positions and, you know, if you're serving on the board or on a team or in the booth in the back, I think there's a lot that we can do as a community informally to reach out to people and connect with others. And again, I know that that's always more difficult than just staying at home and doing your thing. But I know, especially when um, we watch a lot of the Friday Night Lives, that connection with people, whether it's reaching out to someone that's new or reaching out to someone that's been here for a really long time, you just never got a chance to connect with them and get to know them, can set yourself up um, to be used according to God's will. And I want to leave you with this thought um, about all of us that are sitting in this room. And if you're a part of a community and you value your community, that I think that idea as I was coming up with this, with this sermon was just so humbling. The fact that maybe God puts you in this situation right now. That God has providentially orchestrated your presence, your character, your words, your actions, your presence in this community for such a time as this. That there's someone in here, in this community, in this room, a part of Rock Fellowship, your school or work, that needs your presence. And you being there, you reaching out to them, you getting involved in someone's life outside of yourself can truly change their life and also allow you to experience being a part of God's will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, I thank you for the promise that you've given us really throughout the book of Esther and the importance of, of community. I know that for us at Rock Fellowship, this is really um, one of the most important things for us, this idea of creating a loving community that leads people to you and helps them recognize the lasting purpose, God. Lord, but I know this is one of those things that are much easier said than done, Lord. And I look at the story of Esther, and really everything Esther does is the hard thing, the harder thing to do, where she gets out of her comfort zone. She does things that, that put her at risk, that make her uncomfortable, that probably stressed her out. And we look at, at Haman, and, and we look at Haman and the king, who are probably never stressed um, at any point in their life. And, and it's, it's crazy to think that it, it seems so much more appealing to live that way, Lord. But you promise us that in order for you to work through us, to, to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, um, you ask us to step out of our comfort zone. Not only step out of our comfort zone, but step out of our comfort zone in a way where we can serve others and live our lives in our community as a means of getting involved in other people's lives, of caring for others, of loving people as we have experienced your own love, Lord. Um, help us humble and really understand the fact that and make it applicable in our lives that God, you can move through every single person in this room if we put ourselves in that situation to serve you, to humble ourselves and submit to you, God, because that is who you are, Lord, a God that, that is with us and never leaves us, Lord. And even in the story of these people post-exile, Lord, you were, you were always there with your people and you never left them and you continue to move in their lives, even if it wasn't as flashy as it was in other books. We thank you for that promise and the assurance that you love us, that you never leave us. I praise in your son Jesus' name.